Good morning, everybody. James 5. Please take your Bible and turn to James 5. Today we come to the end of James, and we find ourselves in the last two verses that has to do with a very specific subject. James chapter 5. If you were to do a character study of all the people in the Bible, what might you find to be the one thing they all have in common? Besides their faith in a triune God. I would say failure. Failure. The Old Testament characters, for example, were men who were called by God to deliver a message, but sometimes they failed, didn't they? Because they're men. And it's been said that the best of men are men at best, right? Adam fell. Noah drank. Abraham lied. Jacob deceived. Moses murdered. David cheated. Solomon strayed. Jonah disobeyed, and Samson lusted, to put it mildly. And I could go on. How about the New Testament people? Were all of the New Testament figures towering examples of godliness? Sometimes. Sometimes not. They, too, were fallible men. Take Peter. He doubted. And was admonished for it. He was very stubborn at times. And he was rebuked for it. He was violent. And was corrected on the spot by our Lord Jesus in the garden. Paul, formerly known as Saul, an overzealous Pharisee, was a feared accomplice in the fatal persecution of the church prior to his conversion. Even James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were given the nickname the Sons of Thunder by Jesus because of their fervently angry personality. Young Pastor Timothy battled discouragement and fear, which is why his mentor had to exhort him to kindle afresh the gift of God, the gift of God which is in you, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity. I could go on and show you more examples of failure in the Bible. But time does not permit me to embark on an in-depth look at all of the characters in the Holy Writ. But there is one more unique character I do want to bring to your attention this morning. When we read about this character, it perplexes us, it disturbs us, and it causes us to ask plenty of questions so we don't talk about them that much. This man's failure didn't just merely result in sorrow, depression, despair, regret, loneliness, or pain. This particular man's failure led to his apostasy. And ultimately to his untimely death. Who do I speak of? Judas Iscariot. 
a formal, a formal, former disciple of Jesus turned traitor and apostate. An apostate is simply one who at one time professed faith in Christ and perhaps for a period of time appeared to follow Christ, but then later fell away and denied him. Judas was the first apostate. He was the first to betray Christ, but he was certainly not the last. Apostasy was a continued occurrence during the apostolic age. For instance, there was a disciple of Paul named Demas who defected from the faith. 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. And then apparently we learn in 2 Timothy 4 verse 16 that Demas was not the only one that abandoned Paul. Towards the end of his letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. We can also take a bird's eye view of church history and see the countless accounts of apostasy. The biggest and most notable is the corporate apostasy of the Roman Catholic Church. It does not take a Ph.D. in church history to see that those professing to be the guardians of the truth, 2 Timothy 3, the church is the pillar or the buttress in support of the truth. Those whom claimed to be guardians of the truth defected from it around the 5th century when Pope Leo instituted purgatory, papal supremacy, and devotion to Mary. From there, over the next thousand years, give or take, more and more traditions began to form to the degree as such that the gospel itself became hidden in darkness. Pastor and theologian, Dr. R.C. Sproul, said, At the moment the Roman Catholic Church condemned the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone, she denied the gospel and ceased to be a legitimate church, regardless of all the rest of her affirmations of Christian orthodoxy. To embrace her, the Catholic Church, as an authentic church, while she continues to repudiate the biblical doctrine of salvation, is a fatal attribution. In other words, what Dr. Sproul was saying, the Church of Rome, which harbors around 1.2 billion people worldwide, is an apostate religion. Because they abandon the true gospel of grace in exchange for a gospel of works, to simplify it. So, Catholics are not our brothers and sisters. But they're also not our enemy. They are our mission field. Apostates are non-believers needing the good news of Christ alone. Apostasy, not only did it occur back then in droves, but we also must recognize that it's an ongoing trend today. In fact, there are could be very well a future apostate among us this very second. 
Or perhaps you already know someone, a friend, a family member, who has already abandoned the faith they once professed. So how will we or how do we deal with those people? That's a question that we need to be prepared to answer. And so what we will do is learn how we are to deal with them this morning. And that's precisely why I've entitled the message today, Dealing with Apostates. James 5, 19 and 20 reveals the procedure of dealing with apostates biblically. There are three actions you must take in the biblical procedure of dealing with those who walk away from Christ and his church. Now, this may be somewhat stupefying to some of you to learn that it's your responsibility, not only the elders, to go after apostates because, number one, of the culture we live in, and number two, because of the mainstream theology that we are influenced and inundated by. Here in the Pacific Northwest, culturally, I think it's safe to say that people around here, for the most part, are quite reclusive. To put it delicately. Have you ever heard of the Seattle Freeze? Has I heard of that before? The Seattle Freeze? She, yeah, she, she knows that because she works at Starbucks, right? She gets it. The Seattle Freeze. Who's never heard of that? Okay. Have you heard of it? Yeah, okay. All right. Well, here it is. It's, it's a phrase that describes um, how the city of Seattle is generally viewed as unfriendly, introverted, socially aloof, and cliquish, making the city very difficult to make social connections on all levels. One fascinating article I read about this Seattle freeze, I just, I'll just share this brief illustration because I think it's a little funny too. This article said that Seattle is like that popular girl in high school. The one who gets your vote for homecoming queen because she's always smiling and says hello to you. But she doesn't know your name and doesn't care to. She doesn't want to be your friend. She's just being nice. And so a lot of people observe that about our culture. And so have I. And so we need to understand that that's how we are. As a culture, that's who we are. We're not deep people. We don't seek out deep, meaningful relationships. And if you don't have a deep relationship, it's very difficult to pursue somebody. So take that for what it's worth. Isn't it the culture? In addition to that, we need to be aware of the mainstream theology that we're inundated with because we can't escape it. We have to, we have to deal with it all the time. You know, the idea that God is only a God of love. The idea that you should never judge somebody. And the idea that the church on Sunday is optional, and it exists merely for the sake of serving the consumer. That is mainstream theology in our day and age. And we have to be aware of it. We have to be aware of it. So, James 5, 19 and 20 requires that we thaw out from the Seattle freeze, okay? 
And it requires us to be discerning about what is influencing us. I hope you'll be eager and willing to follow what God has revealed in James 5, 19 and 20. Let's read it. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Three actions you must take in the biblical procedure of dealing with those who walk away from Christ. The first order of business is to examine the evidence of apostasy. Examine the evidence of apostasy. Look at verse 19 again. He starts out with my brethren. For the last time in his letter, James uses his favorite address, my brethren. It's a familial address indicating his spiritual relationship to his readers, the persecuted Jews. And this is important to, uh, to point out as we go through because it demonstrates a tender touch here. He doesn't throw his weight around like, like, like he could as an apostle. He's not a brutal dictator. He demonstrates a caring tone. Now, where there, there were portions of this letter where he was not so tender. Remember James 4? He called them adulteresses, sinners, and double-minded. But mostly throughout this letter, you can observe that he speaks to them mainly as his brothers in Christ. Brothers in Christ are the genuine believers who are related to one another through faith in Jesus Christ. So he addresses them as brothers. And then he says, if any among you strays from the truth. A lot in that phrase right there. To sum it up, this phrase refers to professing believers who need to be called to true salvation by the rest of the fellowship. That is to say, those whom have defected, abandoned the faith, they once professed and are known by a local assembly to have done so. As one commentator said, sadly, such people exist in every church. I've only been the pastor here for two and a half years. And I know we've lost some people due to apostasy. And it's not just my responsibility to go after them. It's yours. That's why one of the greatest living expositors has claimed someone has to reach the unreached. I began trying to reach the reached. Not many people realize that aspect of evangelism. In other words, it is the duty of every preacher to do the work of an evangelist in the pulpit. That doesn't mean that's all he does, nor does it mean that's the primary thing he does, but he is to regularly and repeatedly explain the gospel in different ways. Because in every assembly, 
no matter how big or small, there's bound to be at least one unbeliever or one false convert in the group. And it would be very unloving of me to refrain from preaching the gospel to them. Amen? Don't you like to hear the gospel? I hope it never gets boring for you. The Greek word translated stray, it means to wander, to be deceived, to be misled, to cause to err, or to form a wrong judgment. While most mainline translations render it strays or wanders, the old King James Version stands alone again. And it says that any of you do err. And I understand why it's translated that way. It's because of the context. The noun form is used later in verse 20. But consider this as well. What is the opposite of error? It's truth. If anyone of you err from the truth, truth. Look at that. Look, I want you to see, I want you to see this in your Bibles. Look at verse 19. From the truth. Notice that definite article. The truth. Not truth in general. Not this idea that all truth is God's truth. The truth. The truth refers broadly to all that is revealed in God's word, especially the gospel. It is a sure mark of apostasy when one changes his or her view of salvation and falls away doctrinally from the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude 3. The faith was handed down once. It's not to be reinvented, reinterpreted, and re-explained in an innovative way. Now, I think it's helpful to clarify something. There is a difference between an apostate religion and a cult. A cult is a false form of Christianity that denies fundamental tenets of Christianity. Okay? Example would be at Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they both deny the deity of Christ. From their inception to their evolution, they have been independent and intentionally separate for everyone else. An apostate religion is a group that once historically held to complete orthodoxy, but over time drifted into such serious error in one or more areas of truth that the gospel became so convoluted to the point where it was indiscernible. Does that make sense? We've already established that the clearest example of an apostate religion is Roman Catholicism. It was birthed out of orthodoxy. It was birthed out of the apostolic age. But then it drifted too far. And yet, still clung to many key points of right doctrine. That is why both Catholics and Protestants can affirm ancient creeds such as the Apostles' Creed. Which, by the way, is not in the Bible. Nor was it written by the Apostles themselves. That creed was penned in the 4th century before the obvious apostasy of Rome. 
Even though we can agree with our Roman friends on the veracity of the Apostles' Creed, it matters very little. So don't use that as the standard. It's not sufficient. It does not deal with the gospel in its entirety. Therefore, it's not a comprehensive doctrinal statement, and it never was intended to be used as such. I digress a little. Here's the point of all this. Be on the lookout for people who are drifting. Be on the lookout for people who change their theology. And watch out for yourself too. Like Judas and Demas, the one who defects, abandons Jesus, can be those whom appear to be the most religiously committed Christians. Then at some time, at some point, something happens. And poof, they're gone. And so I will echo the command that Paul gave to Timothy, lest his discouragement get the best of him and lead him astray. Paul commanded him, watch your life and doctrine closely. 1 Timothy 4.16 So examine yourself. Examine your brothers and sisters who stop coming around. One sign of apostasy People stop coming to church. They start to become isolated. Sooner or later, they don't even want people coming around. And then one thing leads to another. They're denying the gospel outright. They're denying key fundamental truths. So that's the first order of business in the biblical procedure of dealing with those who walk away from Christ. The second order of business is to communicate the consequence of apostasy. Look at verse 20. It says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will Save his soul from what? From death. He who turns a sinner. I want to zone in on that word sinner for a second. This moniker further serves to verify the condition of the one who strays. Let's take special note of this. One who turns his back on Christ and the church is not a victim. He's not confused. He's not down on his luck. He's not innocent. He's not searching. And he's not a free spirit or free thinker. What does Scripture say? He's a sinner. That's a word used in Scripture to describe the unregenerate. The unbeliever who is hardened and openly defiant against God's law. Psalm 51 verse 13 reveals that sinners need to be converted 
And the New Testament depicts sinners as those outside the kingdom of God. So, when you see the word sinner in the Bible and the context dictates... That they are an unbeliever enslaved to sin. Some carry around the mindset of, you know, we're all sinners. I'm a sinner. So I can't be involved in biblical confrontation because I feel like a hypocrite. Yes, we're all sinners. Yes, we need to examine ourselves. Yes, Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. But Jesus is talking about hypocritical judgment. Jesus is saying, you examine yourself first, and then you go. So we're all sinners, and we need grace continually. But we're not all unconverted on our way to hell, right? The sinner, to be very clear, in this context, is the one who continually practices sin living without Christ and without true salvation. Those whom have Christ possess a responsibility to seek to turn the sinner from what? From the error of his way. From the error of his way. This phrase is referring to the sinner's lifestyle. To err from the truth is a departure from sound theology, which leads to what? What does a departure from sound theology lead to? A departure from right living. Why? Because our doctrine always informs our practice. Our doctrine always informs our practice. That's key. Just as true godly morals lead to holiness, faithfulness, charity, and honesty, among many other virtues, false, ungodly ideas results in evil behavior. A couple days ago, I read a brief testimony of a man who, as we speak, is going through a really difficult time in dealing with an apostate very close to him. This apostate in this man's life is not someone in his local church. It's not somebody that he's related to. It's not a child. It's not a coworker. It's his own wife. And he didn't say when, but she became influenced by an ultra-charismatic cult which teaches, to put it in Pauline terms, doctrines of demons. This cult sent out an email to all of its recipients, all those who are part of this cult, with a supposed prophecy in this email. Part of this prophecy said, listen, it is time for a new beginning. It is time to leave the house of the fool. So because of her doctrine, she took those words as saying that she deserves better than her husband. And so just like that, on a whim, 
based on a short sentence believed to be the words from God. She informed her husband of 22 years that she wanted a divorce. Now, do you see how that errant theology led to a disgustingly evil practice? Do you see why I care for you to understand and be aware of the charismatic movement? It's because if you're not discerning about those things, that could happen to you. If you are convinced that God still speaks through self-appointed prophets, then you've opened the door to this type of behavior. So understand why we must teach and teach and preach and preach and why you must learn and deepen your theology because if you don't, you could end up in the death grip of apostasy. James says, where does apostasy end? Middle of verse 20. Will save his soul from death. That is ultimate spiritual death. The condemnation to eternal damnation that results from unforgiven sin. That's what's at stake. The woman that I just told you about who left her husband after 22 years because of a false prophecy? I think we can say with some confidence, based on what Scripture teaches, that she is walking briskly towards the gates of hell. Her life proves it. So my precious sheep, we need this sober reminder once in a while. We need to be reminded of the reality of a real, literal, fiery hell for a few reasons. First, it refocuses our thinking on eternity. Especially this time of the year, Christmas season. We get too captivated with people and stuff, and we forget about the chief matters, the gospel, the supremacy of God. And we get sidetracked by extended relatives and cheap plastic toys. Secondly, it reestablishes gratitude in our hearts knowing that we've been saved by grace from eternal punishment. So that's what you're saved from? You don't have to fear hell. You don't have to fear death. Thirdly, it reminds us of the great reality, the awful reality, that people rarely ponder and hardly ever discuss Lots of people are going there. 
unless God intervenes. When's the last time you stopped and thought? So many people around the world are going to hell. Unless God intervenes. By what means does Scripture teach us that God intervenes in the path of a sinner? By what means? We're not fatalists, right? We're not quietists. We don't just say, let go and let God, right? We're not the frozen chosen, right? Well, that leads us to the third order of business in the biblical procedure of dealing with those who walk away from Christ. It's this. Talk about the salvation from apostasy. Talk about the salvation from apostasy. Now, we're going to do a little bit of back and forth. First, look at 19b. It says, if one goes after the one who has strayed, and turns him back. Now, here's a little lesson on the gospel, okay? And talking about the gospel, there must be talk of true conversion. That is the human response to the gospel call. This is not the same as repentance. To repent means to change your mind. James is not using the Greek word that's translated repent. Look at the end of verse 19. If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. That's referring to a person's life. It refers to the person's initial turn from sin to God in conversion. In conversion, you, all, you, you turn from idolatry and turn towards the worship of the true God. So it's more than our inner change of mind, which is also essential, but it also has to do with behavior. When I give my testimony, I don't merely speak of the fact that God changed my mind radically. I major on how my life changed, as was evidenced by my outward fruit. Prior to conversion, all I cared about was partying and getting rich. But then when God broke me and saved me, I did the unthinkable. I sat in my barracks room willingly and read the Bible. And I went to church because I actually wanted to. And I made new friends that were going to teach me the scripture. When I was converted, I turned from living for self and turned toward Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Peter pled with his listeners in Acts 3.19, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Paul preached in Acts 14, 15. We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you so you should turn from these vain things to a living God. 
at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, James the Just stood up and declared, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Before King Agrippa, as a detainee of Rome, Paul in Acts 26, 18, boldly testified that he was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. A lot of theology in that verse, huh? And then Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted, unless you turn and become like a, ch- like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So James uses the same word here to speak of the miracle of, of, of conversion. Turning from something to something else. In this case, from a false belief and evil behavior to genuine faith and righteous living. The repentant one will reap the eternal benefit of saving faith. And what's that? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, which is what James intends to communicate in the final few words of this letter. wonderful way to end this book he wrote the one who is converted will cover a multitude of sins that's the good news speak of the good news to cover something is to hide something and when something is hidden from sight what happens it's overlooked right it's overlooked With regard to a converted sinner, his sins are overlooked and not punished. He is forgiven. And listen to this. Sometimes I think we have a little bit of a skewed view of forgiveness, okay? So, again, let me revert you back to Scripture. Here's how God views forgiveness. Micah 7.19 says that our sin is hidden, covered in the depths of the sea. I don't know about you, but if something is in the depths of the sea, can't you see it? No. And therefore, since it is hidden in the depth of the sea, it can never be counted against us ever again. But there is a condition for this forgiveness, brothers and sisters. There is a condition. Everyone who does not follow Christ will not know this forgiveness. Everyone includes those whom you know that have already abandoned the faith, which is evidenced by their lack of profession or a profession with evil behavior. 
When there's evidence that indicates a believer's faith is phony. God has granted you the ministry of reconciliation. You are to go to them after having examined the evidence and communicate the consequence of their apostasy, spiritual death. And then talk about the gospel. Love them enough not just to tell them the easy part, that God loves them. That's true. But they won't get that if they don't understand what that means. You cannot even begin to comprehend the love of God until you understand what he has saved you from. So plead with them. Plead with them to repent and return so they may receive forgiveness of sin. It is biblical and it is right to confront apostates. And it's incumbent upon you to do so. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us this call and the privilege to be involved in the reconciliation of sinners. I'm grateful that you have saved me. You called me to yourself and you have put men in in my life to call me to turn. If there are any today in this room that have not turned to serve a living God, then I pray that you cause them to repent and believe. Help them to see that they can't save themselves. Help them to see that it is Christ's work alone, his life and death, can only give us the righteousness we need to stand in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Thank you for intervening. Thank you for inspiring James to write this letter so we may know you deeper and understand what you've done. Loving Jesus' name, amen.